Welcome to Hello Climate Calling, the climate change podcast by the Embassy of Finland in London and the British Embassy in Helsinki. We are on a quest to find climate solutions and shed light on the projects and people working towards a more sustainable world. I'm your host Noora Mattila and today we will be exploring climate justice. How to ensure that everyone's voice is heard and that we can move to a carbon-free world in a fair and equal way. We have quite a top panel of guests here. From the UK, we have Professor Lorraine Whitmarsh, who is the director of the Center for Climate Change and Social Transformations called CAST. Welcome to the podcast and thank you for being here. Hi there, good to be here. And from Finland, we have Oti Honkatukia, who is the chief negotiator for climate change at the Ministry of Environment. Hi, Oti. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me. Before diving into climate justice, I have one question to ask you both. What is something you always wanted to know about the UK or Finland? Or is there something that you find fascinating in each other's home countries and you would like to know more about? How has it been with, with having such a young female leadership? It's very exciting to see your new your new leader. And, and what's the impact of that been? I mean, I think, um, I mean, first of all, I'm very proud of my of my country and the fact that we have a young prime minister and a lot of uh, young uh, party leaders uh, who've actually uh, had to sh- also show extraordinary leadership in these times of the of the COVID-19. And, and then just sort of looking at how Finland has fared uh, throughout the pandemic. I mean, I think, I mean, everything's relative, but but I think uh, we are we are in, in reasonably good shape. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, do you have any questions for Lorraine? Uh, given that the spotlight is really going to be on UK next year with the uh, presidency of the, of the COP26 and 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 with your with your G7 presidency as well, that that what are your expectations on that when it comes to to the issues on climate change? I mean, you know, we're really hoping that next year will be just so much better in many ways, and the fact that we're hosting uh, the COP talks uh, in uh, towards the end of the year gives us people that work in climate change, something to really focus on and to look forward to. We've already had some encouraging announcements from our government in terms of policies that they want to be implementing that will get us on the road to net zero and reach our target, but we're we're not really on track so far. So what we hope is that the fact that we will be hosting will then up the ambition of our government to actually implement much more uh, significant and ambitious policies, because so far... It hasn't been sufficient. So yeah, we're we're optimistic uh, that next year will be much better than this year. Right. So we are recording this at the end of 2020, the year of quite a turmoil. But our eyes are on uh, COP26 in November. The UK is hosting this really big, important climate change conference then. So that's why we also talk about this whole topic is climate change and climate justice is our focus today. Oti, you have been in the UN climate negotiations since 2008 with a special focus on climate finance. Last year, you also became one of EU's chief climate negotiators as the first Finn ever to act in this role. Is climate justice something that Finland um, frequently brings up? Um, climate justice is, is something that's clearly sort of increasing in, in relevance and, and, and it's also um, talked about much more now than it was, so let's say, like 10 years ago. 
But at the same time, um, I mean, there are very different approaches to climate justice and, and perhaps the one point of view that, that we um, keep on mentioning most is that the best way to address climate justice, and certainly when we are talking about intergenerational or, or sort of geographical uh, and, and related to wealth, is that, that those that are in a position to do so really implement these uh, massive emission reductions uh, as soon as possible. But Lorraine, you're an environmental psychologist, so you research behavior and attitudes that are related to climate change. Is that correct? And what's your point of view to climate justice? So um, in environmental psychology, uh, the sorts of things that we're interested in are what predicts people's perceptions of climate change as a risk, uh, what predicts and influences their willingness to take action, to mitigate and adapt to climate change, Uh, why might they support certain policies and so on. And so climate justice comes in a few ways there. Uh, In terms of the kind of perceptions of the issue and and whether it seems like a risk, we know that climate change feels psychologically distant to a lot of people because it's a global issue. It's something that seems to affect people generally further away from us in distant places, in the future, um, and, and people that are generally not like us. So we need to obviously think about kind of that psychological distance and addressing that if we're to get more equitable solutions to to climate change. The the rise of the youth movement has been particularly interesting here because it's helped shed light on the impacts of climate change within our own country, but for the next generation. So the people that will inherit uh, the impacts of of actions that we're taking today. Um, And one other way it's relevant as well is that we know that uh, people's support for policies is very strongly influenced by perceptions of fairness. Policies are more acceptable if they're fair than if they're seen as effective. That includes distributional uh, fairness and equity. So who is going to be impacted by the different policies? Are we going to be disadvantaging some over others? But also procedurally. So is everybody having their fair share in the discussions about how we get to net zero, how we adapt and so on? Um, So that's why a lot of the work that we've been doing has actually been uh, feeding into deliberative processes like the UK Citizens Assembly on Climate Change. So this gives people a voice. uh, It improves the quality of decision making. So it is part of uh, environmental psychology too. Wow. You basically summarized all the topics we are aiming to talk about today. (laughs) Thank you. So climate justice means that we are not only talking about environmental change, but also addressing things like human rights, equality and responsibility, which we already touched on a little bit. So what it means is at least that we acknowledge that some people are more affected and more vulnerable to the impacts of climate change and that we take actions that are fair and equal to fight climate change. So if we take this first one, that some people are more vulnerable to the impacts of climate change, can one say that the poorest and overall the most vulnerable in society suffer the most if and when the climate changes? Yeah, exactly. I, uh, I, I'm one of the lead authors in the, the IPCC's working group too, which is looking at impacts and adaptation. And it comes out so clearly from the evidence really uh, that 
climate change is just something that compounds and exacerbates existing inequalities within society. So, you know, so gender, ethnicity, lower income, whatever dimension you look at in terms of people's kind of having, you know, lower capacity, lower resilience, all of those things mean that they will be more vulnerable to um, climate change. Right. It affects more people of colour and minorities and also women. Perhaps it's a little surprising that this is also a gender issue and women overall tend to be more impacted. Why is that? It might be surprising in countries where we have, you know, women have reasonable access to resources and so on. But I think in many parts of the world, it's not the case and women just don't have power. They just they have little access to formal decision making, to resources, etc. So they inevitably bear the brunt of, of things like climate change. So uh, and there may be discriminatory laws and customs and, and in many places it, it is very much a gender issue. And Just to give a concrete example of, you know, why women may be affected more. For example, in the case of flash floods, I mean, if, if, if girls are not taught to swim, hmm. you know, then, then when you get a flash flood, flood, I mean, obviously there's going to be one gender that's more and more affected than, than the other. Mm-hmm. You mentioned, Oti, that this climate justice comes up increasingly in the negotiations. What are the hot topics of climate justice that are discussed and maybe will be discussed also in COP26? I would expect that certainly the uh, whole issue of uh, intergenerational equity and, and also the um, just, just sort of equity in general, I mean, I, th- I think that is going to be um, um, discussed and, and, and basically... Um, I mean, the, it, it all, all kind of comes down to what's being done in terms of climate action and, and emission reductions. But then the, the other side of the coin is that if those emission reductions are not sufficient, then you're going to increasingly need uh, to focus on adaptation. And, and maybe also one thing that's, uh, that's not uh, discussed as much is that uh, irrespective of, uh, of how quickly we manage to, to reduce emissions and, and, and stop sort of the... Um, the temperature increases, um, there's going to be a, a very significant need for focus on adaptation action in any event, that, that there are already those, uh, for example, the, the small island states, I mean, they, you know, that, that are um, the sort of the, the least capable and most vulnerable. I mean, they, they are already uh, seeing the, the, the consequences. Mm. Can you name concrete examples of how the global community can help the adaptations of vulnerable nations? I think there's a lot to be done on on, on just sort of, you know, learning from each other and, and sharing best practices. I think there's going to be a, a demand for, for more technology and uh, related to adaptation. And I think uh, that's going to also then raise the very... Um, politically um, hot potato question is that who is going to fund all this. Based on what you're saying, it seems like almost like the discussion of climate change is discussion of climate justice. And I'm sure it's like really important to make sure like everyone within a nation is also uh, involved. And we're not only like talking business level or political level or, or elite level. Yeah, I think so. I mean, most of our work is actually on the mitigation side. That's uh, what our centre focuses on. 
and there, climate justice is very much about, you know, how can we achieve a just transition in terms of, you know, thinking about people that might work in sectors like livestock farming or the fossil fuel industry. These are the sorts of sectors which are very high emissions. So we need to significantly reduce our dependence on those sorts of products that come out of those sectors. So what does it mean for the people that work in farming, livestock farming, for example, or on oil refineries, etc. How can we find jobs for them, reskill them, move them into different lower carbon, greener professions in a way that in the past, when we've had transitions away from certain sorts of energy sources, for example, like coal uh, to, you know, to gas or whatever, it has meant that communities that relied on coal mining to give them jobs uh, were then completely decimated and it left them with no no jobs. The community was completely eroded. And these are some of the poorest parts of, of our country, at least, um, where we didn't have a just transition in that case. So how can we do better now in terms of climate change? And it's interesting that there are examples of previous shifts that maybe there's a, uh, an opportunity to learn from past mistakes As an example of this just transition, Lorraine, would you like to go deeper into what are the ways of making the transition more fair to industries that are more polluting or farmers who need to change their methods or uh, other groups that you mentioned? I mean, I think it would include things like providing training opportunities to ensure that the people within those sectors can change their practices Uh, or where those sectors need to shrink, perhaps. It's about actually completely reskilling, re-educating some of that workforce so that they can do different things. And so maybe moving to, you know, a completely different type of food production or something, or working with the land in a different way so that they're storing carbon as opposed to using it for livestock farming. Not all land can be used in those different ways, of course, but if it is possible, then it's about providing skills and training and enabling and potentially providing incentives and other sorts of support so that those businesses can adapt. And that actually has quite wide public support, we found, is, is thinking about how we can support and enable those those workers and those sectors to change in the direction that we need them to. But maybe just to to, to build on that, I mean, certainly in the, in the EU, I mean, we've got, um, you know, we've, we've got common agricultural policy. So, so, so I think really the the, the way to, to implement the uh, this uh, sort of uh, uh, emission reduction measures in the agricultural sector is to make sure that the climate considerations are mainstreamed in the common agricultural policies. Maybe just to give also an example from Finland, where the uh, with the issue of just transition uh, certainly right now is is very much focused on on peat, which is which mm-hmm. is used for 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 energy and when which is in, indeed I mean you know compared to coal, for example, has got relatively high high em- emissions. Mm-hmm. So there again, I mean, it's, it's, it's really sort of looking at uh, how to support those who are currently employed with, with, in, the, in, the, in the so-called peat industry, that whether what, what kind of uh, re-education and training would be needed and, and whether, whether they could sort of, for example, use the same machinery that they've already invested, you know, to, for, for, for peat, whether that same machinery could be, could then be used, uh, for example, for nature conservation or, or for for uh, rehabilitation of, of, of wetlands or, or, or something. So it's it's very important to make sure that this transition in economy is, is is just. At the same time, I think it's important to remember that economies, by their nature, they are dyna- dynamic, and, mm-hmm. the, and that there are always industry sectors 
that are sort of growing and others that are shrinking. And, and, and that's okay. That's, that's just the way that the economies, uh, the market economies work. So in the, in the end of the day, I think, I think and, and this sort of ties the, both the justice and the, and the, and the just transition issue, is to, to make sure that the decision makers are actually focused on, 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 on protecting the workers and not the jobs, because the jobs will change from one sector to another. Right, that's a very good point. You already brought up that climate justice is also a matter of justice between generations. And that's why we have also interviewed two people who are actively giving a voice to the next generation. Here's Maya Rose Craig, a British Bangladeshi ornithologist and campaigner for equal rights. She's also known as the blogger Bird Girl in the UK. I think there's a few different reasons why I care so much about environmental issues. Like, I think I'm hyper aware, really, that I'm seeing climate change right now. I'm seeing the impact of environmental issues right now. And it's only going to get worse and worse. I, I suppose the thing that as a young person frustrates me the most is that these issues could have been solved decades ago. I think that's the thing that makes me angriest. But I think most of that sentiment is towards our politicians and our world leaders who, in my eyes at least, um, are continuously choosing other things like uh, money and the economy and profit over our planet and our environment and the environmental issues that are going to go on and negatively affect all of the people that they're supposed to be representing. And as this generation of young people grow up to become voting age, they are going to be removed from power because they're not representing us and they're not representing uh, the issues that we care about. And in terms of climate change in particular, I absolutely fell in love with that wave of action that we suddenly saw just a couple of years ago now, um, which in my opinion, completely changed the landscape of uh, the environmental movement and the whole conversation around climate change. And I, th I think that's absolutely down to young people. One of the most frustrating things for me as a youth activist is people telling me how like fantastic it is that I've became an activist at such a young age, which I think, especially as I've started talking to more young activists from around the world, a really common theme is how young they started. And it makes me really angry that these kids essentially have had to go out and try and save the world. And I suppose my vision for the future really is that there's going to be generations of children who never have to put themselves in that position. And I think that that would be the most important thing to me going forward. She addressed a lot of things there, but what kind of thoughts or feelings came to your mind? I mean, I can actually relate to a lot of things that we just just heard and, and starting with, you know, why wasn't this issue uh, solved uh, like decades ago? I guess the, the, the flip and easy answer would be that uh, politicians would have solved the issue if they would have known how to solve it and still get re-elected. So the fact that you have elections like every four years uh, automatically sort of makes politicians just to focus on what's going to happen in, in the next uh, couple of years. At the same time, also, I think the voice of science has become clearer and louder. You know, when, when the Paris Agreement was negotiated, um, we were looking at how to make sure that we uh, limit the temperature increase to under two degrees. 
Then we got the IPCC report in 2018, which basically looked at the 1.5 degree and very much sort of uh, that was a wake-up call to, to, to a lot of people and, and politicians that, that in fact, um, we, we really need to do our utmost to make sure that the temperature increase is, is limited to the one and a half degrees. And I, I very much share that sentiment that I actually, frankly, I think it's unfair that uh, sort of uh, school children and teenagers have to be worried about climate change. I mean, I, I think I think that just proves that the leaders and the decision makers have failed. Um, but the one thing about the these uh, youth movements and young activists is that I, I do think that leaders are now listening and 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 they are being being heard. Yeah, she even said young people really drive the movement these days and have changed the discussion. Do you agree, Lorraine? I think to some extent, yes. But I think what's really important about the youth movement is that they have a moral authority because they haven't caused this problem, but they are going to inherit it. It's actually, I find it quite quite hard to listen to that, actually, especially as you know someone that has young children. This is awful to really conceptualise it in that way. Let's hear a bit more about how young people take part and what kind of priorities they have. Here's 24-year-old Emma Sairanen from Helsinki, a student of biotechnology who has been named as a youth delegate for climate in Finland. But what does that mean? Here's Emma. The main role of a climate youth delegate is to represent the youth voice in climate discussions, both internationally and nationally, of course, and, well, In a normal case, the most important maybe job of the climate youth delegate would be to join the Finnish delegation to the climate negotiations. But of course, this year they were postponed because of Corona, so I wasn't able to go there. But um, the youth have been very resourceful and they organized a global mock COP youth climate conference and I was able to represent Finland there. Youth are indisputably a very important voice in the climate discussion and youth action is driving more ambitious climate policies around the world. However, I also feel that youth climate activists are sometimes bullied and belittled, for example, telling that they are too young or they don't understand things. Policymakers and decision makers should not only listen to youth, but they should actually involve youth in the decision-making processes. As I mentioned earlier, I was just participating in the Mock COP Youth Global Climate Conference. And in this conference, the youth came up with a climate treaty that national governments can adopt. And in this treaty, the youth are beautifully highlighting the need for climate justice including recognizing the rights of indigenous peoples and supporting a just transition for people who are at the moment relying on jobs in, for example, polluting industries. And youth are also suggesting that the UN recognizes the rights of nature alongside with the human rights. What gives me hope? People around the world taking action gives me hope. I think working together gives me hope. Ideas like Christiana Figueres's idea of stubborn optimism, where we just cannot give up because there is no other choice than to go on and to work for a future that we want. That gives me hope. And all visions of a better future, utopias, whatever people come up with. 
I think it gives me hope to work for a future that I would want to live in. There's something about that that makes me cry a little bit, but I'll try to get over that. Um, Emma was listing some priorities for young people. Do you think they are the same as people who are participating in the negotiations or or working for climate justice? I actually know Emma because she is our, our indeed the youth delegates and, and we are having these sort of virtual uh, discussions and, and she presented the the messages from the from the mock cop um, so which, which I think is, is very important and, and and I think it's 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 I think we absolutely need to have the the, the uh, hear, hear the views of the youth and 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 make sure that they are also uh, included in, in our in our discussions. Um, The, the other thing I just wanted to mention very quickly is that uh, we also have a climate policy roundtable in Finland, which is actually chaired by the, the prime minister and uh, a youth delegate is one of the vice chairs of, of this of this roundtable. So we are sort of taking steps to make sure that the voice of the youth is also included. The, the issues that, that Emma was raising, certainly on climate justice and also on, on indigenous uh, people's rights, I think they're very important. And, and Finland is, is one of the few, very few um, uh, European countries which, which actually have got their indigenous people. Uh, and, and, and they actually have a constitutional right to be, uh, they, they are consulted and, and being heard on all these uh, policy measures and decisions that can impact their uh, traditional way of life. We also always make sure that, um, that we have an Indigenous Peoples uh, representative in, in our COP delegations, and we will certainly have one also in Glasgow. And I also like uh, the, um, the stubborn optimism that, uh, that, that Emma was, uh, was, was emphasizing in her, in her intervention. It was quite sad to hear that, you know, she feels that she's bullied and not listened to and so on. So there's clearly more that we can do to uh, address that and to, to incorporate youth voice in, in what we're doing. But it's great to hear that... Um, That's that. Yeah, that you're doing a lot to to try and do that in in Finland. So, um, yeah, I think it's about ensuring that we do more of that uh, elsewhere too. For our final section of this episode, let's bring this theme of climate justice closer to home, so to say, to um, just the changes that people need to do in their everyday life to stop climate change. Uh, Lorraine, the CAST Center has identified four areas where change is necessary, material consumption, diet, mobility and transportation, and thermal comfort. What makes people feel that the changes are unfair? So we know that the sorts of aspects uh, that, that are relevant here, of course, could be income. So some of the sorts of technological innovations or other sorts of policies that that are implemented to achieve net zero and adapt to climate change um, will cost money. So if we're all expected to buy electric vehicles as we are moving away from um, internal combustion engines over the next few years, and we've, this is this is one of our recent policy announcements, then of course electric vehicles do at the moment cost quite a lot more than conventional vehicles. Similarly, heat pumps and other sorts of um, low-carbon heating technologies or home insulation, etc. These things cost money. So it, it is a concern in terms of exacerbating um, economic inequality. Um, but there could be other dimensions in terms of, for example, urban-rural. So people that live in rural 
areas, again, may uh, feel that it's not feasible to have an electric vehicle if there's nowhere to charge it up. Or if we move towards more public transport and away from private transport altogether, uh, those sorts of policies, again, maybe they may impede people that live in, in rural areas more than uh, urban areas. So it is about thinking about the various maybe physical, economic, other sorts of social aspects that that could impact on, on people. Mm-hmm. And how could decision makers make these changes easier and more affordable to people? So I think actually it's interesting. There tends to be, at least in this country, but but I would imagine in many countries, a tendency for governments to go for the techno solutions, the techno fixes to address climate change because they can see economic wins there. They can see there could be green jobs here. There could be industry will benefit uh, if we go down a more technological innovation path. Uh, and also in terms of public acceptability, maybe they think, well, we don't want to kind of change people's behavior too much. Technologies can hopefully fix it. Well, we know, in fact, that technology alone will not get us sufficiently to net zero to where we need to be to tackle climate change. We do need those behavioral changes too. But the other thing about the technological solutions is that, as I say, they may be the ones that are out of reach financially for, for many people. Um, and and so what we need to do basically is when we're looking at the, the range of policy options is to think uh, what might be the impacts on people in terms of equity, health, biodiversity, and so on. So to give you a concrete example in the transportation area, you could just say we're going to replace internal combustion engines with electric cars. And okay, that will sort out emissions at the point of using the vehicle. It does not sort out congestion. It does not sort out road accidents, obesity. Uh, it doesn't even really sort out air pollution fundamentally because you still get particulate matter from, from vehicles on the road. And it's financially out of reach for, for some people. However, If you encourage people to use public transport and active transport, particularly so walking and cycling, if you design towns and cities so that you don't need a car to get to where you need to go, to the shops, to your workplace, to the hospital, then you know you are encouraging, enabling people to walk and cycle and take the bus and the train. And it's financially much more accessible for most people. It's Uh, it achieves co-benefits in terms of he- improving health. You know, walking and cycling is healthier. Um, and yeah, so while it does require people to change their behavior, actually, it improves sustainability goals in, in various aspects and it's uh, it doesn't exacerbate inequality. I do think that it is ultimately the responsibility of, the, of our leaders and decision makers to make sure that the economic instruments that we use and, and, the, and the regulations and And, and so on, that they are such that they actually make these choices easy for the consumer and not that the consumer has to is, is faced with very difficult choices in their everyday life. Right. And because it's also so often that people feel like, well, this is a major change in my life and it has so little impact. And like the whole of Finland is responsible for so little emissions, like compared to the big polluters and stuff, like what does it matter what I do? So it's really hard maybe also to justify to an individual person why you would have to change your lifestyle completely. 
Yeah, I think this is exactly the reason we can't uh, rely on voluntary changes by consumers because they will rightly say, well, why should I reduce my energy consumption and avoid driving when I see people within my own country not changing their behaviour, let alone people in other countries apparently polluting much more than in my own uh, small country. So that's why I think we do have to have yeah, to some extent, a top-down approach that the policymakers have to enable, encourage uh, change by consumers through economic instruments, regulatory instruments, et cetera, as well as information, um, and not just leave it up to individuals to choose whether or not to do it. But I think linked to that as well is that actually it's important that we have policies that have these co-benefits built into them. Then we can say to the electorate, well, look, we want to improve everybody's well-being and quality of life. And many of the things that we will do in the pathway to net zero will improve your health, improve your finances, etc. Then we will have that buy-in from the electorate to actually achieve those things. Oti and Lorraine, are you hopeful about the future? Absolutely. I, I think I think one has to. I mean, I, I don't think, I mean, if you, if, if one adopts a very sort of uh, pessimistic view, then you kind of, you know, just sort of, uh, you, 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 you're giving up. Personally, I don't think that's an option. I agree. Yeah. I, I don't think I could get out of bed in the morning if if I didn't really just assume that we will somehow fix this or that it would be kind of okay. And and also, as I mentioned, with having young children, I just, I think that the prospect of thinking that we won't uh, sufficiently tackle climate change is too unbearable to really uh, conceptualise. So I, yeah, I have to, whether it's uh, this this stubborn optimism, I think it's, you know, I, I think I just have to try and be optimistic. Stubborn optimism is the takeaway from this discussion. I have one last question for you. What is your everyday climate action? This is always slightly awkward that I'm not actually a vegan, uh, but I should probably be a vegan. Um, I, I don't eat very much meat at all, so I, I feel like I'm doing okay on that. But um, I, I do eat uh, dairy, and uh, so that's my downfall. But uh, I, you know, well, nobody really flies, flies, of course, right at the moment. But I, I've, I, d- I was already doing very little flying, and actually, it was mostly IPCC meetings that <laughs> made me fly. Um, so I try and avoid uh, travel as much as I, I can as well. But um, yeah, I definitely am always aware that I could be doing very much better than I am. <laughs> You've almost like reversed this question, like what more you should do for climate. <laughs> yeah, I think I think working in this field, all you can see is all the things you, you know, I know that that's bad and yet still I'm doing it. And yeah, so it's it's difficult not to focus on the things that, bad. <laughs> I'm sure guilt is a big part of environmental <laughs> psychology also. <laughs> yeah, definitely, yeah. How about Odi? Yeah, like Lorraine, I don't I don't eat much meat. Um I, I don't uh well I mean like like you know I, no no one no one flies for holidays um <laughs> at the moment but I don't I don't I, I don't do that. I mean I just sort of uh, fly when I for, for work basically. Um, I, I use the bicycle almost uh, year round to go to work. And I guess I also, um, actually I buy a lot of uh, secondhand clothes and I think, I think that sort of started already as a, as a student and, and that wasn't uh, necessarily for environmental reasons at that point, but I've sort of, uh, um, carried that habit, uh, to, 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 uh, you know, up to these days as well. Good. 
Oti and Lorraine, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thanks so much for joining this podcast. Thank you for having me. It was really great to hear, hear you. Uh, Oti, did I say that right? Yeah. Um, because, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, your perspective is absolutely fascinating from, well, I'm almost like at the individual level and you're at the kind of international level. And I think that uh, was a really nice, um, uh, yeah, a really nice contrast. Yeah, thanks a lot. This was Hello Climate Calling. Thank you for listening. You can find our podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you like what you're hearing, please share our podcast with your friends and colleagues.